When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Football Social Daily. Find your nearest GDK restaurants at germandonakebab.com. Time for your Premier League update for Tuesday. Hello, this is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Seven days a week, news and opinion from the Premier League. On today's show, could it be goodbye Guardiola for Manchester City? Newspaper reports today claim that Juventus are prepared to do whatever it takes to bring Pep to Italy. We'll be speaking to an Italian football expert to find out whether there's any truth in this or the papers are just trying to fill their word count during the winter break. Also, Unai Emery has taken a dig at Arsenal's players. The former Gunners boss said that some stars didn't have the right attitude during his time at the club. We'll discuss that, as well as taking the Piccadilly line to West London and talk Chelsea and the fact that following their two-window embargo, they've made the highest net profit on transfers in Europe. But where will the Blues reinvest that money in the summer? Plus, Manchester United have applied for safe standing at Old Trafford. Could a return to the terraces make for improved atmospheres in the Premier League? Alongside me in the studio, having survived the throes of Storm Kira and now Storm Dennis this morning... We're going through all the storms here in Britain. We've got Jim Salveson. Hello. Hello. And we've got Adam Brown. Hello. Hi, Niall. You're all right. I'm, I'm very just trying well. to work out where we're coming from to get to Chelsea on the Piccadilly. Full and Broadway, mate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just you should work it out in my you head. Should, you should know. It's that general direction, I think. Anyway, enough about <laughs> London's uh, underground transport system. Let's talk about the football. Let's start with Arsenal. Unai Emery was sacked by the club in November with the Gunners eight points off the top four at the time. Now he's had his say on his spell at the Emirates. He's pretty much rigorously defended his time at the helm. And he said this, Arsenal was a club on a downward slope for two years before I arrived. We stopped this fall and even began to rebuild the club with the Europa League final and fifth place in the league. But we lost our four captains. They were personalities that we missed. And some stars did not have a good attitude and asked for more than what they were giving back. Taking all of that into account, we needed time to succeed with our transition, which is what I wanted. Are these justified points for Moon I Emery or just excuses? What do we think? Oh, stop the press. Arsenal players have bad attitudes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> tell us something we don't know. I mean, yeah, you can kind of see his point with this one. And I think something that has been said about the Arsenal playing staff for a long time 
is there are too many bad apples in that cart. And when things aren't going that way, they throw their toys out the pram. And we've seen that demonstrated time and time again with the likes of Ozil and the likes of Xhaka. And there have been issues there. I kind of think he is justified to make these points. And I think he's within his rights to criticise them, given the stories that we heard coming out of the training ground and out of the club at the time he was in charge, that they had players groups openly mocking him in terms of his tactics and even his voice. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, he didn't really stand much of a chance at Arsenal. And I think he's kind of right to call them out on this. I'd agree, actually. I, th- I think he, you know, it's just the timing of it. And also, people are going to suggest sour grapes instantly, aren't they? And say, oh, it didn't, you know, of course, he's making excuses. But I think Jim's right. I think him mentioning the four captains, I think he lost uh, quite a few characters. Obviously, people have questioned whether Arsenal have had those characters at all in the last sort of 10 years. They've said they've lacked them. But I think looking at, you know, Koscielny was a big player for them. Mm. You know, Peter Cech had a hell of a lot of experience to go into the dressing room with. He might not be the most vocal of players, but mm. he's been there and he's achieved a lot, you yeah. know, in, in terms of his uh, trophies. Ramsey was arguably one of their best players. And then, you know, Monreal, who was hailed as being one of these kind of influential players behind the scenes. So he's lost some big players. I think arguably the players that he probably needed to lose some of them start the club, like Ozil, Xhaka, obviously Lacazette's been quite vocal in his criticism. I think he was right in saying they, already, they were on the decline beforehand. I think obviously the later years of the, the Arsene Wenger reign, they weren't spectacular for Arsenal. But I don't know what Arsenal fans expected him to do. There was a big rebuilding job for me. It wasn't mm. something that was going to be a two-season fix. He's not a bad manager, clearly. He's been successful. He's won things before. He didn't do that bad at Arsenal, obviously with the Europa League and finishing fifth. I don't know what more they wanted from him, really. I, I do wonder whether it was kind of a little bit of a poison chalice. In a similar 100%. situation when Ferguson. David Moyes went into yeah. yeah to replace Fergie. Whoever came after Fergie was going to have a hell of a job. And whoever came after Arsene Wenger, Arsenal, was going to have a hell of a job. I mean, Wenger had been there for 20 years, Jim. Yeah. It's like, how do you replace that? Exactly. It's impossible and, to do and that without... he controlled everything at that football club as well, from what food was served in the canteen to what was happening on the pitch. He was over everything. And you can't just replace that with one guy coming in. So there was always going to be this kind of like this buffer zone manager, like Moyes at Manchester United, that was going to be in there, who was going to almost make fans realise that there was a massive rebuilding. I'm not saying the board deliberately appointed him to be this kind of buffer zone, to be this sacrificial lamb. But that certainly was the case. And it made fans realise that, yeah, maybe there is a bigger job here than we appreciated. Wenger wasn't the problem. The yeah. problem is bigger at the club. And I think, do you think there's also uh, something to say about the way that Arsenal fans reacted when he was appointed? Because I think that some of the names that Arsenal fans are throwing around at the time, mm. I think they expected a bigger, high-profile manager than... They were, quite, in, they were happy-ish, though, weren't they, when Emery yeah, was appointed? Yeah, I mean, you know, Emery, he'd, he'd won, obviously, European trophies and stuff, but I think that... Some, I don't think he was one of the front-runners in terms of the names they were mentioning. They were obviously talking about Allegri and all mm. these and Ancelotti at the time and all these other kind of, you know, big-name managers. I'm not saying that Emery wasn't a big name as such, but he wasn't the sort of... The, the box office kind of name that they, they wanted and I think a lot of people are like oh we've only got we've got in Emery and I don't think people saw him as being someone who's going to be there for five ten years I mean it doesn't happen in football anyway now does it but even for five years I think a lot of Arsenal fans thought well oh he's not really the guy we wanted and I don't think he really ever got a chance me I don't think he ever felt like someone who was going to be become part of the furniture and become a big settled manager who's going to have that run and the opportunity I think what he does say about those players that you highlighted about losing his leaders is quite important though and you can see how if you are in that situation where you need to kind of really take control of a football club instantly he is coming in and replacing Wenger you need everyone pulling in the same direction and to lose that key 
group of leaders on the pitch and leaders in the dressing room as well probably was really important to him. We've talked about the ridiculousness of the Arsenal leadership group, the WhatsApp group between the major players at the club who could decide who was going to captain what game or whatever it was, some ridiculous scenario. If you're taken out, you're kind of your most respected people in a dressing room, then something has to fill that void. Mm. And they probably didn't have the players to actually fill that void, which is why we saw Granit Xhaka get in the captaincy when a lot of Arsenal fans didn't think he even deserved to be on the pitch. Yeah, I mean, they fell so far behind the other the other top teams in the league under Wenger. And I think actually Wenger, even towards the end, you had you know we'd see it a lot on social media mainly because you know the Arsenal fans shouting about Wenger out, and it seemed to be a three season, four season thing that went on and on and rumbled on until finally it happened. But what gets me about it is I think that for me Wenger was doing actually doing an amazing job with what he had in front of him in terms of the squad. He was actually getting a hell of a lot out of that squad towards the end, when even when he was still fin- managing to finish in the top five. Mm. You look at the squad, actually, compared to the rest of the top five, top six, and they probably he shouldn't have really been competing. Yeah, all right, a couple of outstanding players in terms of strikers, maybe, and, and players that probably should be delivering more like Ozil, but again, that's been rumbling on for years. But I think he was actually probably doing a better job than people were giving him credit for. But because of his past success and because of Arsenal's success in the early 2000s, late 90s, people were still living off that thinking, we're mm. still an amazing team. We still we should be competing for titles. But actually, no, 10 years too late. 10 years had passed and they'd fallen so far behind. Yeah, we have to say this is a, an interview which has been translated into English. So sometimes they can seem a little bit harsher than they actually are. But certainly it doesn't look like Emery's been mincing his words here. He did say Arsenal was a club on a downward slope for two years before I arrived. He claims that he stopped that slide and actually took the club back up again because of that Europa League final, even though they got smashed by Chelsea, Mm -hmm. and because of that fifth place finish. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, he's been very, very clear about his defence of his reign at Arsenal. I mean, the fans might say something differently. I mean, we've had um, You Are My Arsenal, haven't we, on the podcast before, who's Mm -hmm. a, a stateside Arsenal fan, who said that there was just something that didn't feel right about the way Emery was kind of setting up the team. Is there a way in which the Arsenal fans can look at this and think, well, it's just sour grapes, Bruno Emery? His reign at Arsenal would be very difficult to describe as a success. Yeah? We all agree I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's fair. Was it his fault? I don't know. I think he, he started reasonably at the club. He wasn't massively backed in terms of the transfer window. And there was a toxic atmosphere amongst the players and amongst the fans as well. And it would be very difficult for any manager to perform in those circumstances. I think he's actually, when you look at it, when you take a step back, he has done a decent job. Yeah, because it wasn't had... a failure. I don't no. think it was a complete failure, but it wasn't a success. And, I mean, and he set Arteta up now for this yeah, situation where Arteta can succeed. The captain thing you mentioned, Adam, was probably a, a big sticking point for Emery during this season because it was a mess. Mm. You know, them trying to decide who their captains were going to be and whatnot. And I think that, you know, he's kind of come out and tried to defend that by saying, you know, they lost Czech, Monreal, Ramsey and Koscielny. That kind of showed cracks in the armour, didn't it? That made Emery a target to be shot at. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, as, as soon as you're getting, you've not got a clear captain, you don't know who, who your leader is on the pitch, you're, you're in big, big trouble, big, big trouble. And you can't even identify, even if it's hard to, to sort of see, or there's no kind of clear, I mean, given someone like Xhaka, the captain, the captain like, like Jim said, was a, it's a crazy decision, but then you look around and go, well, who else could have taken it? Because yeah, there was no one else yeah. there that was an obvious choice. In, a, in any workplace, if you've got a boss who's completely detached from his workforce and you've got the workforce that are going off and making little jokes behind his back and undermining him it's never going to work in any scenario is it Mm. 
So and that's kind of what he faced at Arsenal. And I think that obviously he wasn't massively backed in the transfer market, but I do think that Arsenal, you know, in Emery's reign and maybe even a little bit before that, I always feel like they never really addressed what they actually need. So when they bought big, for me, a lot of them have been head scratchers for me. I'm thinking, why have you bought a player in that mm. position when you don't necessarily need someone in that position? Yeah. Like they've almost got too many forward players now that, that how would you fit them all into the team? But then they've been crying out for, you know, someone in def- defence, you know, crying out for a, a real defender for five, six years. It'd be really interesting to see what happens now in terms of the investment in the club because, as you say, now we've had You Are My Arsenal on a few times, the supporters group from the US, and they've been very critical of the Cronkies and their lack of investment in the club. And we saw them put £75 million into Pepe this last window, but we don't know how that's structured. Over like five years worth yeah. of instalments, I think. So are yeah. actually, they're going to put their hands in their pockets and address these issues that everyone's been able to see for years. We've always gone, Arsenal have a dodgy defence, but they can score goals going forwards. And going into this season, they looked exciting going forwards, but at the back, there were question marks. But are they actually going to look at it now as a proper project and let Arteta, who will know how to build a squad and will know how to develop players, mm. have the money he needs to recruit in the right areas. And you think about who is in charge of the recruitment, really, as well. Because if, if uh, there's a lot of, even if sort of over installments, 75 million quid on Pepe is a lot of money mm. to back Emery with at the start of the season to say, who do you, you know, presumably it's, he's have nothing to do with that in my eye because yeah. if they're not happy with him, I mean, obviously it's partly based on the record that they had this season, but 70. I just for me that was a really strange signing. It was almost yeah. like he was available, so let's just get him. Mm. Yeah. But you've got you could have spent seventy five million quid and got two decent defenders. And um, Gabriel Martinelli for me has been better than Pepe this yeah, season. Unbelievable. And he's eighteen years exactly. old. And obviously Edu I think is the sporting director at Arsenal, the, the former player of theirs and uh, the former Brazil international. Just before we move on and talk about Pep Guardiola possibly moving to Juventus, um, Mesut Ozil and Lacazette have waded into the debate. They've had their say. Lacazette said. We're expecting to see big improvements in our team in the next couple of weeks, uh, even though the results under Arteta haven't exactly been brilliant. And Ertzil said, as a team, we're much happier and everyone wants to give everything for the club, which I thought was very interesting considering it doesn't look like Ertzil's been giving everything for the club for the last however many years. Doesn't it kind of prove Emery's point a little bit as well? Like the thing to do in that scenario if you're a player for a football club, because it reflects badly on the football club, is to remain and keep a dignified silence. And why is Ozil saying, as you say, saying, we're ready to give our all for the club now. Should have been I mean, doing f- six me, years yeah, ago. Yeah. Exactly. You've, you've been being paid £150,000 a week or whatever it is. For yeah. like, that should be enough motivation you need. It doesn't matter that the guy in charge says good evening instead of evening. <laughs> Just sort your head out, mate, and put a shift in. Yeah, and it's like he's now, now I'm ready to give my all. Oh, yeah, good. Just oh, thanks, now, thanks, Ozil. Now the conditions are perfect. Now I'm going to start playing. All right, well, you're six years too late yeah, now, mate, yeah, unfortunately. Six years of 350k a week. Yeah. Two managers down the pan. Um, talking of managers down the pan, I'm not saying Manchester City are going to flush away Pep Guardiola, but certainly this morning, plenty of newspaper rumours about whether Pep could be on his way to Italy. So joining us on the line, we've got Italian football journalist Vito Doria from Forza Italian Football. He's going to talk Pep to Juventus. What do you make of this then, Vito? Juventus fans, they've said maybe Maurizio Sarri isn't quite the right fit for them. They're neck and neck in Serie A with Inter Milan at the moment. And the newspapers in Britain this morning have been all over the fact Pep Guardiola could be on his way to Turin. What's the kind of rumblings that you've got from this story? The interesting thing is that about 24 hours earlier, the Italian press were reporting something different. They were suggesting in one of the newspapers, La Repubblica, that they were thinking of even bringing... Massimiliano Allegri back to Juventus if results didn't turn around. But uh, now that this has come up again, I'm personally not too surprised about it at all. Um, 
There was speculation of Guardiola joining at the end of last season, but uh, they weren't able to sign him. He stayed with the Manchester City. But now that the citizens are 22 points behind Liverpool in the English Premier League chase, perhaps it's time for Guardiola to have a new challenge. I thought what was interesting about this story is that I've seen throughout the summer just gone that Juventus fans weren't really that fussed with Serie A this season. They've won it eight seasons in a row. You know, they've been champions of Italy since 2011. You know, the Scudetto is pretty much permanently residing in Turin right now. But one thing that's been a criticism of Pep Guardiola over here in England is that he hasn't won the Champions League for over 10 years and he hasn't won the Champions League with Manchester City. Of course, we know Juventus signed Cristiano Ronaldo so they could finally pick up that European trophy. Is Pep Guardiola going to be the right man to finally fire Juventus to the Champions League, the one that the fans want? I won't say that he's definitely the man, but I think he has that pedigree. And because of that, I think he's more likely to bring Champions League success than the previous coaches that have been at Juventus. I found that uh, Massimiliano Allegri in particular was perhaps uh, far too conservative in his methods, uh, even by Italian standards. And uh, I think that was his downfall in Europe. During his time at both AC Milan and Juventus, I felt that his game management, in particular European ties, um, backfired on him and he perhaps either shut shop too soon or he did not attack opponents at the right moment. And I think uh, that's probably why he still hasn't won a Champions League trophy himself. Vito, now I don't watch a great deal of Italian football. In fact, I think I last watched it when we had Gola Italia, whatever it was called on Channel 4 <laughs> over here in the UK. But my kind of view of oh, Italian football is it's Italian. this conservative, pragmatic, defensive football. And I mean, that that's, that'd be a massive change for Pep Guardiola, who plays this free-flowing, attacking, high-press football. It would be a massive change for him to bring that into Syria if that is the case over there with the style that they currently play. That's the interesting thing. And... Uh... Those comments sound a bit similar to what Sam Allardyce was saying. I don't have similar footballing views to Sam Allardyce. <laughs> <laughs> I'm to quash that now. Jim is actually a West Ham fan, so I'm not surprprised if okay. the, uh, the methods of Sam Allardyce have filtered through over the years. Look, with Italian football, admittedly, it is still far more tactical than most other football styles. And particularly in the defensive phase, the Italians will naturally pay attention to that part of the game. That being said, uh, Italian football is not overly defensive like it was from the 1960s until the 1980s. Uh, from the 90s onwards, it's really opened up. In this decade in particular, there have been some rather exciting games, teams that do play in a far more expansive style that's more pleasing in the eye. And uh, I think it drifts away from that old narrative of Italian football being just dour and about grinding out the results. So, Vito, what, what is it about Sari that, that the Juventus fans aren't, aren't liking? Is it his style of play or what, what is it that's not connecting? There are different bunch of factors, but I think with Sari, he has that one style of play. That's what he was known for at Empoli and Napoli. And uh, he's not someone that's going to be changing formations or changing game plans constantly. Sari has become known for his attractive football and entertaining football. Uh, known as Sarismo in Italy or in the English-speaking world, Sariball. But uh, with Chelsea, you only saw it in patches. 
and at Juventus, it has rarely been seen as well. And one of the problems that I don't think the midfield in particular is really suited to a possession-based game. So even if Sarri was sacked at the end of the season and Guardiola was brought in, they would need to produce midfielders that are more technically gifted and have that greater confidence and invention on the ball. Finally then, Vito, if we take a quote from the papers, they say that Juventus will do whatever it takes to bring Pep Guardiola to Turin. I mean, what would that entail? Do you think would that be a big financial package, a long contract? Hypothetically speaking, I suppose that a lengthy contract and, of course, a huge pay packet would be some of the things to entice him. I've seen on some websites that they would uh, even try and go for Virgil van Dijk from Liverpool, but I think that's nothing more than rumours and speculation. Uh, that being said, I do think there is a need to really boost the squad in some aspects because, for instance, Giorgio Chiellini in defence, he's become injury-prone and he's going to turn 36 this year, so he's... Still a defender of great experience and he's a tenacious defender, but the body's no longer holding up. And as I addressed earlier, I think there are issues in midfield. Uh, Miralem Pjanic, the Bosnian international, probably is not as impressive as he could be. Signing Aaron Ramsey from Arsenal on a free transfer has not worked out so far. And then the players like Sami Kadira and uh, Blaze Matuidi, who are 33 this year, 33 years old this year, and in the long term, I don't think those players can take Juventus forward. And needless to say, they're not uh, the Pep Guardiola type players. They're not going to be the guys that will pass the ball around or pick out pinpoint passes for the forwards to score a bucket load of goals. Vito, it's been great to chat to you, mate. Thanks very much. Where can we find you on Twitter? On Twitter, there's my handle at Vito C. Doria. And then, of course, most of my work is on the Forza Italian Football website. And the Twitter handle for that is at Serie A FFC. Vito, it's been great to chat to you. Thanks for joining us all the way from Australia. Much appreciated. And we'll catch up with you again soon, I'm sure. No worries, lads. Take care. That was Italian football journalist Vito Doria from Forza Italian Football talking about Pep Guardiola to Juventus. For me, Adam, I think it's what I said at the start. I think this is just trying to fill the word count in the... Uh, the unenviable winter break where newspapers are probably a little bit light on content. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that I, I do think that if Guardiola did leave uh, at the end of the season, it's a big if, and I don't think it's going to happen personally, but you wouldn't rule out Juventus jump making a play for him, one of the best managers in the world. Anyone's going to want him. So I, I could easily see, if, if he does leave City, uh, which again, I don't think it'll happen, I could easily see Juventus suddenly just clearing everyone out there and, and trying to get him in. I think a lot of clubs would be willing to do that to get Guardiola. It'd be interesting to see, like Jim said, how his style would kind of adapt to Italian football. Obviously, I think it has changed a little bit since the since the eighties and nineties. But even so, you still don't associate Serie A with the with the flowing football that you get in the Premier League at times. So Guardiola is going to be a success anywhere. I think personally, there's a big difference between Juventus wanting Guardiola and pulling out all the stops and offering him a bucket load of cash and actually getting Guardiola. Yeah. We're, this is one side of a story. This is Juventus saying they want him. It's got to rely on Guardiola wanting to go as well. And we know the conditions for Guardiola to go to a football club are much more than a great big pay packet. We saw at City, they had to build an entire environment for him to go into. They had to hire his mates yeah. as director of football and whatnot. So it has to be a similar setup at Juventus, I think. Does Pep want a new challenge? I think 100%. At some point, 
I mean, City fans seem to have this misguided belief that he's going to stay there as some kind of loyalty for the next five, six seasons. That's not going to happen, no. I don't think. He'll want to move. He's talked about trying to try his hand in international football. That's code for I want a new challenge at some point. Yeah. It won't be international football. It will be another league, but who knows whether it will be Syria or La Liga or back to your Barca or League yeah. or but whatever. I think there's only a handful of clubs that he would probably go to, yeah. I think. There's only a handful of clubs that could afford it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's that. And also, they will, could have the infrastructure that he kind of requires. Yeah. You know, because he thinks it, he thinks himself, there's only a few clubs that have actually got the, like, the, the setup that would enable him to kind of yeah. flourish, which is weird, because if he's one of the best managers in the world, you should be able to do it anywhere, in theory. Yeah. But he needs it to be right. The conditions I wanted to see him at Farnborough Town or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> Pep couldn't do it on a cold Tuesday this night, could it, he? You know, yeah. yeah. But this is the thing, Juve fans desperately want the Champions League. Mm. Desperate. They're sick of winning the Scudetto year after year. I mean, they're neck and neck with Inter Milan, but you'd expect that this season. They're the best team in Italy. No team has ever strung this many back-to-back titles together in the history of the Italian League. You know, they've got an iron grip on that Italian division. But Pep Guardiola doesn't guarantee you the Champions that's League. What I mean. That's what I mean. I mean but no that's one guarantees the you the Champions Jose League. Jose might have been a better choice with his Champions League record. So many options anyway. We're not here to talk about Juventus. It's such a We're here to talk to about win. the Premier League. It is, of course it is. Um, Roberto Di Matteo managed to do it though, so I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> so everyone else is saying. Um, <laughs> anyway, after this quick break here on Football Social Daily, we'll be talking about Chelsea and also Aston Villa and how the two clubs are linked in a rather strange way. Plus, Manchester United have applied for safe standing at Old Trafford. Could that improve atmospheres in Premier League grounds? This is Football Social Daily. Don't go anywhere. Football Social Daily with German Doner Kebab. Now 40 restaurants across the UK. Find out where at germandonerkebab.com. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social, your only daily Premier League podcast. My name's Niall. I've got Adam Brown and Jim Salverson alongside me in the studio. And let's talk about transfers, shall we? Why not? When it's a winter break, you always end up talking about transfers. And not so much transfer rumours this time around. I want to talk about Chelsea because it's been revealed now by the Football Observatory, who do like to kind of crunch the numbers in the football world, that Chelsea have actually made the most net profit on transfers in the last two transfers for windows now that's probably to be expected considering they did have a two window Mm. transfer embargo (laughs) and they didn't sign anyone in the January window the only money they've spent was through a loophole where they turned Matteo Kovacic's loan from Real Madrid into a permanent deal for around 45 million euros but the numbers say that Chelsea have made over 200 million euros in profit mainly funded from the sale of Eden Hazard to Real Madrid for 100 million euros So where are the Blues going to reinvest that money, Jim? Because we've seen Tammy Abraham playing through an ankle injury. We thought Giroud might be away from Stamford Bridge this January. That never happened. Lampard doesn't really seem to trust his other two strikers, Giroud and Batshuayi. So, I mean, where are Chelsea going to reinvest? Is striker the most obvious place? I think you nailed it in the introduction by saying that this is no kind of transfer acumen on Chelsea's part. It's the fact that they haven't been able to spend the money that they got in from Hazard, who they had no choice but to sell, really. And the fact that they managed to spend 45 million quid when they had a transfer ban (laughs) just shows (laughs) that they're probably not the shrewdest of uh, investors. I mean, I was a bit surprised that Lampard didn't spend in the January window. I think we all expected him to bring someone in and it was either going to be a left-sided attacking player or someone to support Abraham and let Giroud and Batshuayi leave the club. 
but he didn't do that. And all I can think of the reasoning behind that was, A, they were caught off guard, by the tr- off guard a little bit by the transfer ban being lifted. Mm-hmm. They weren't expecting to be able to buy anyone in January. So the, the, we will talk about January as being like a, a quick fire sale as sort of panic buying. But there's still work ahead of the window opening that needs to go into securing players if mm-hmm. you're a club. Yeah. Who wants to do well? If you're a club like West Ham, then you're just looking through <laughs> the, the, the Sears catalogue. Like, Football manager. To go. Yeah, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. But if you're a club like Chelsea, who actually is built for success, there's a little bit of planning that goes into buying <laughs> players. Um, so, yeah, maybe they were caught a little bit off guard, so couldn't quite find the right fit for players. Maybe Lampard is using this season and the low expectations that he's been given because of the transfer ban to just sound out the squad a little bit and work out what he's got at his disposal before spending that money in the summer window. But yeah, when they do eventually spend whatever cash they've got, then you'd imagine it will be left-sided attacker support in the middle. I think, um, obviously, the, the, the big scrutiny starts as well once Lampard starts signing players because he's on a whole different level to what he's used to. And, it, you know, when he's, good point. when he's bringing someone in from uh, when he was at Derby County and he spends three and a half million quid on someone from League One, it's not the same. Doesn't, no, doesn't quite you're, correlate. You're dropping 50, 60 million plus on on players. Mm. They've got to work, really. I mean, obviously Solskjaer's had that at United. He's had a lot of scrutiny over players that that, that he's brought in. As soon as you pay that, that big money, straight away, well, why, well, you can't. You just bought a new player. Why is he not scoring? Why are you not winning more games? So what Jim was saying about maybe he's kind of using this season as letting some of these young players develop and then reassessing it in the summer to say mm. actually. Are some of these young players good enough to 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 kind of be a full time part of the squad? Do I need to address this yeah. position? Can he fill in? How many games can I get out of him a season? I think he's going to go for a new goalkeeper as well in the, in the summer. I don't think he's convinced on uh, on, on Kepper. No. I don't think he's convinced on him at all. I think he'll go for a new keeper. Well, I do think about him wanting Nick Pope, weren't there? Yeah, and also an interesting one. And oh. Dubravka as well, I heard yeah, maybe as well. What's fascinating is that clubs now though. Clubs now know, though, that they can rinse Chelsea of a bit of cash for a goalkeeper because mm. they spent 75 million quid on Kepper, which is a world record for a goalkeeper. It's a mad amount of money. And if you think, you know, we always use the Virgil van Dijk comparison, 75 million that Liverpool spent for him. If you compare the impact that he's had compared to the impact that Kepper was supposed to have, have as an effective replacement for Courtois, it's not really happened, has it? It's not really had the, the desired impact that you would think would that money would mm. warrant. No, I think I think they're going to go for a new goalie and I think that the, the Hazard thing, they probably would have replaced him if, they, if they'd have had a chance to replace him. Obviously, they've had one window now. But, I, I mean, the, 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 I presume the Chelsea fans are going to expect quite a big name. But I just wonder where who that could be, who fits the the, the, the bill to replace him. Well, got, they've got 200 million euros to play with. So, Well, yeah, but they've got a slight issue with wages as well at Chelsea. I think it was... In the summer, the figure was £240 million as their wage bill, which is around sort of 50 60% of their turnover. And the UEFA limit is 70%. So you're not supposed to have more than 70% of your turnover in wages. Yes, correct. So they've got this great big wage bill to cope with. And they've also got players who want new contracts. So is it Hudson Adoy that they signed to 150? 100 grand a week, I think. 100 yeah. grand a week. Yeah. And now you've got the likes of Tammy Abraham, who also want parity in that contract. So if they're going to hang on to these young players, they need to restructure their wages somehow. So they need to get people off the books like Oliver Giroud, who will be on a hefty amount. Yeah. Obviously, they've offloaded Hazard. I think the number I read was before they got rid of Hazard as well. So they have to address that as well. It's not just about going, here's 200 million quid, let's bring in some players. It's about cutting out some of the deadwood and some of the big earners from that Chelsea team so they can remain within the FFP rules as well. I think there's an argument as well to suggest that Lampard coming into Chelsea, I know he didn't really have much of a, 
the decision to make. He's a club legend and the managerial job was available. But it's almost like it's been a perfect storm for him because he's had this safety net of the two transfer windows, like you mentioned, the embargo, Adam. And then also everyone else in the Premier League fighting for top four has been at sixes and sevens this year. Mm. You know, Manchester United haven't quite been at it. Arsenal have been poor. Leicester have been the surprise package. Everton haven't exactly been great and they were expected to fight for Europe this year. It's kind of all fallen nicely for Lampard in his first season. And I think there's many different sort of mitigating factors which have cons- which kind of allow people to consider a little bit more what sort of a job that Frank's doing there. Yeah, it'll be next season before we can really tell, as Adam says, when he's had a bit of a chance to bring in some players and we've seen how he can spend money, how he can invest money, and he's got his own team in front of him as well. That's not just a load of youngsters that he's asking to run through walls on a weekly basis. Yeah. It's pro- it's like a, a proper Lampard-esque team. Whether he can do it then will be a real test. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know which way it's going to go. If you'd asked me right at the beginning of the season, sort of five, six games in, when he was starting to really pick up and was absolutely flying, I would have gone, he's going to be a success at Chelsea. He's dropped off a little bit more recently. So it could go either way, I think. It's it's going to be a bit of a free hit, I think, this season, really, for Chelsea in a lot of ways. I mean, you look at the table, they've lost eight games, you know, and that's the same amount of Tottenham. So, you know, and people said how bad Pochettino was and and Mourinho's not been great since he's come in. You know, but Chelsea are still fourth. They could get Champions League, and I think... But I'm listen. I'm, I'm a big fan of Lampard, and I hope he. Do, I kind of. I am rooting for him in a way because you know. I, I, think I love I, him. He's one of my favorite yeah, ever players. Yeah, do you know? What? And I think that, like you say, I, I want to see young managers get the opportunity at big clubs and all the rest of it. But I do feel like, like you said, Niall, the fact that some of the so-called big hitters this season. You look at the table: Tottenham in sixth, Man United in eighth, Arsenal in tenth. You'd expect them to be in the top five, there, there or thereabouts. And if, if even two of those teams had been firing this season... Chelsea would be a long way down. Yeah, yeah of course they would. They'd be seventh, eighth, maybe even ninth. I forgot to even mention Tottenham in that those teams that I was listing off. Yeah, and you think you've got, to, you've got to feel that those teams will bounce back next season, mm-hmm. or certainly two of them three probably will. But then he has done it without investment and losing his best player in the summer transfer window. So that deserves so a little I mean, bit of credit So many well. mitigating factors. Yeah. The fact that young players lost his best player, chance for embargo, everyone else has been poor. I mean, are we really seeing the weird, best of Lampard It's a weird yet? league this year. It's, 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 it's great. It's brilliant, yeah. and we love it. So Chelsea recorded the highest net profit of transfers in the top five European leagues. Can you take a stab at who recorded the lowest? Net profit of transfers? Well, it wasn't a net profit. It was a negative balance. Uh, across the whole of the European league? The top five European leagues. Top five. Oh. Is it an English team? It's Real Madrid. Oh, it's yeah. Real Madrid. 181 million euros in negative balance. For, in negative balance, a great one. In negative balance <laughs> on transfers. Closely followed by Aston Villa. 172 wow. million pounds in negative balance on transfers. So they've wow. shelled out a lot of money to try and stay up in the Premier League. Fergal Brennan, Mystic Fergal, as we've been calling him this week after his prediction of Sheffield United to finish top 10, in which I apologise for laughing him at the studio at the start of the season. Um <laughs> He said that he thinks Aston Villa could have done a bit of a crash and burn. I wouldn't say they've crashed and burned like Fulham did last year, but certainly when you've spent that amount of money on players and you're probably only just staying up, we'll have to wait and see till the end of the season, Adam, to see whether it's really been worth it. Yeah, they're going to put a uh, three million pound price tag on Jack Grealish now, aren't they, to try yeah. and recoup the losses? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I see a lot of similarities with the Fulham situation. Obviously, they invested quite heavily, uh, which. You know, teams get criticised for not doing that sometimes. When they come up, they go, oh, well, look at Norwich. When, when they came up, they, they've not kind of spent any money and, uh, you know, how they expected to survive. And Sheffield United have kind of spent some money but seem to have spent it a lot more wiser than yeah. Villa. Villa seem to just kind of get as many bodies in as they could from various European leagues and 
quite a lot of unproven players, um, which is the risk that Dean Smith's obviously taken. It's looking like it might not pay off. Again, Villa could end up surviving this season. I don't know. I, I, you have to take uh, one of the, a direction when you get promoted from, from the championship, but and it's very tough, isn't it? To, mm. You've got to kind of go with it. You've convi- you've your conviction. Are you going to spend money, yeah. or are you just going to kind of stick with the core of players? It's very hard to know what the, what the outcome's going to be. Really, the concern for Villa would be that they've made this big investment. They've got a lot of players on their books at the moment with high wages, with Premier League wages. And you do get the parachute payments when you come down. So there's a little bit of a safety net, but it still relies on you being able to offload some of your bigger earners and offload Mm -hmm. some of your better players. The question is, they've invested this money in playing staff that now, if they get relegated to the Championship, they won't be able to command the same transfer fees that they came in for because they've not added to that value. They spent big on the likes of Wesley. What was it, 30... Five was it on Wesley? Yeah, I don't know. It, I think a, it was. A, a, I think it was a lot of thirty, twenty-five yeah. sort of yeah. signings that added up over the summer. But if you look at the top ten in that list, I mean, they're sandwiched Aston Villa between Real Madrid, Barcelona, <laughs> United, and Tottenham Hotspur in there. Monaco, Inter Milan, Juventus. I mean, you know, it's a it's a list of teams which could probably afford to lose that money. I know we know they that are a big Aston club, Villa Aston are a big Villa. club with a with a fair amount of financial clout behind them, but. But they've got to stay up, haven't yeah. they? They've got to stay up. It's a gamble that they've, they've taken, which means they have to stay up. Right then, finally, we're going to talk about Manchester United's Old Trafford, a ground which probably could do with a lick of paint, if I may say so in my own personal opinion. Um, but it's still an absolute behemoth of a football stadium nonetheless. When it is fully, uh, when it was full to capacity and it's bouncing, it is one of the best places to watch a football, I think. However, the atmosphere in Premier League grounds has sort of been questionable over the last few seasons. And in the last couple of years, we've seen the idea re-emerge of safe standing in football grounds. Now, Manchester United have applied for permission to install rail seating in Old Trafford for up to 1,500 fans. That application was submitted back in December. If this goes ahead and Manchester United's Old Trafford gets rail seating and becomes sort of converted into a mini terrace again for Mm. one section of the ground... How much of an improvement could that have on atmosphere and how much of an improvement could we see that have on Premier League atmospheres if, say, standing is increased in future? It's a very small section of the crowd, isn't it? Yeah, well, 75,000, 76,000 capacity stadium to have 1,500 seems very much so to me like they're just dipping their toe in the water for this. It's a purely experimental thing at the moment. I mean, how much will it improve the atmosphere? I'm in no position to comment on that. The last time I went to a standing football ground was Reading in 1994. Oh, wow. It was a European game. Shaka Hislop was in goal. Oh, <laughs> to, to fill it all in. Um, that was the pre-Majeski times. That I was. love Shaka. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I can't remember what standing football was like. We haven't had it in this country since, what was it, 19... 19- since the Hillsborough disaster, since, so, so the early, early 90s, yeah. So, I mean, who knows what kind of effect it's going to have on atmosphere. It's worked where they've done it in Celtic. They've yep. improved the atmosphere there. They've Wol- had a small standing Wolves section. have given it a try as well. Wolves have, and Spurs have future-proofed their stadium. They've got a section that could be easily converted to safe standing, even when it's given the green lights. So, I mean, it can't hurt. You go to a football ground and there's nothing. You don't watch football sitting down, do you? Mm. It's and I, I still don't when I go to no watch Portsmouth does. now. I know it's different in the lower leagues, but I still don't sit down and watch football, especially at away games. I think at home games it's slightly different, which yeah. is why I think this is an interesting dynamic for home supporters to be stood up again. Yeah, I think that, you know, you spend half your time when you go and watch football up and down, up and down, anyway, I yeah. do. And, you know, yeah. as soon as it goes on into the opponent's half, you're up. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. and I do think these... The people in certain sections of crowds anyway, the, the most vocal maybe, and they want to experience football in that way, they're standing up anyway, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, as long as it's controlled and it's safe, which it will be in the modern stadiums anyway, because it's all even even the older stadiums like Old Trafford, it, it's been brought into the modern 
yes, era as, yeah, you know, yeah. as best as it can be. So as long as it's safe and it's, it's controlled, which it, and with it being such a small section, like you said, it's not like they've committed to mm. half the stadium's going to be like this. They can see how that goes, trial it. If they have any doubts at all, they can go, right, OK, it's not worked. I can see it improving uh, atmosphere, but it'd be quite hard to tell because, like Jim said, it's such a, a small amount. But if you look at that as an isolated kind of you know, section of the crowd, if you think that it's improving, maybe it'll spur another fans to sing or I, whatever. I don't think it's purely about atmosphere either. I mean, if you go to Old Trafford and you stand on the Stretford End, you watch the whole thing standing up. Yes. If you, you, yeah. sit, you sit down, you cannot see anything. So yeah. you have I, to stand up for the whole game. I think that's just a, a cultural thing which has yeah. been carried down through the years where there was no seats in football grounds. It was only like one grandstand and the rest of it was terrace. And it's not yeah. a position where the stewards can constantly tell people to sit down either. No, you've got 1,500 people going, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not yeah, sitting yeah, down. Please. Shut up. Yeah. And that's not safe. It's not safe to be have an entire stand standing up in a seated area, which is why you're told to sit down. So part of the whole thing about safe standing is just to improve crowd safety. I mean, if you look at a ground like Borussia Dortmund's, though, uh, Signal Iduna Park, similar capacity to Old Trafford, they've got that world-famous yellow wall, yeah. in which for the Champions League games, I think they have to bring the seats out, or maybe it's the opposite way around, I think, I'm not sure. Basically, for league and, and, and cup competitions, they switch it up from seats to terracing. We've seen how much of a benefit that can be to Dortmund when they play their home games um, at the West Fallon Stadium with the with the big yellow wall and everyone yeah. stood up, eight, nine, ten thousand fans in there. I'm not saying that's going to happen at Old Trafford, but certainly if if football is this entertainment business that we've referred it to as a few times on the show, then you know it, that could be a benefit. Interesting to see how people react to it because obviously fans have been calling for it for, for quite a while now, um, and I think it's something that everyone kind of agrees. And like Jim said, it's not it, it's more now about making what's already happening in grounds like it's like legitimizing it really isn't mm. it I suppose and going actually well we, we, we're aware that it's happening anyway so let's just make sure we can actually make you know control it and make it so it's a, a legal thing to do in the stadium yeah definitely I, I think it's fascinating really to see Premier League stadiums converted into safe standing I think it's brilliant I think it's a really good thing um, I do think that it's worth caveating saying this though that there are people that strongly disagree with this um, because of the situation surrounding the Hillsborough disaster back in 1989 but lessons have been learned from that and it's that, that I mean it, we're now 30 years on yes yeah, 30 years mm. on and mm. they will not make the same mistakes again mm. yeah and, and I think I, I imagine that it won't greatly increase capacity or anything like that. So we're not going to be back to the days of having 120,000 people standing inside Old Trafford because it's suddenly standing and not seating. And there will be, which is why they're doing these tests and these experiments. They're making sure it's 100% safe. Oh, and, yeah. And, 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 it the, is, yeah. and like I say, it is, it's, it is to improve safety as much as it is to improve atmosphere. Yeah, so if you're listening, don't throw a flaming bog roll on the pitch. Don't light a flare. Don't do anything stupid, because I like the idea of, say, standing. I want it to stay <laughs> but from a selfish perspective. Let's bear in mind, this is the Premier League, and so they're introducing safe standard. They will mess it up somehow. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what they'll do, but they will mess it up. <laughs> this has been Football Social Daily, your Premier League update for Tuesday. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Adam. I've been Niall. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow, or whatever it may be, and you'll never miss another episode again. And also, leave us a review as well. We like your reviews, particularly on a Monday we like to read them out and uh, you can also get a shout out on the show as well if you do leave a review make sure it's five star though that definitely greatly increases your chances of having a shout out I can tell you that for free <laughs> uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter as well at the sports social but that's it for now and we'll talk to you again tomorrow football social daily with German Donner Kebab find your nearest GDK restaurants at germandonnerkebab.com Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.